Welcome to the Sum of It All Thinking Classrooms podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And we're going to explore Peter Liljal's newest book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. In this episode, we're going to explore chapter six on where, when, and how we give tasks in a thinking classroom. And I just have to say this chapter had some surprises in it for me. So I am super excited that you're back with us for this episode so we can explore that uh, with you. Um, so to start with, um, when you're supposed to give a task, uh, Peter makes this claim right off the bat that the best time to give a task is three to five minutes after the teacher starts uh, directly um, you know, talking to their students. Mark, I don't know what to say about that. That is like so fast. What are you thinking? Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you. I, you know, remember in our last episode, we talked about, you know, this idea of the least amount of work done by a teacher on the front end, right? And, you know, so it, 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 as we're reading this chapter, I'm going back in my head and I'm saying, you know, how was it when, when I was in the classroom? What was my goal? And, and I was thinking, you know, as when I was teaching, when I was coaching, it was kind of like that five to 12 minutes. But certainly if I could get out of the front of the room in 12 minutes, man, I thought that was stellar. And, and I'd give coaching feedback around like, wow, 12 minutes instead of 25, nice job, you know? And, and then as I read this, you know, three to five minutes, whoa, you know, uh, that's, that's the ideal state before thinking starts to drop. And then Peter, in, in his great way that he does, he says, and then in chapter nine, we'll explain more about that. <laughs> I yeah. thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I got to tell you, he, there's a lot of points in here where he says you're wait for chapter nine. So I'm on it. Chapter nine is definitely right? a panger for each of us. Stay with us for that. But for today, we'll stay focused on chapter six. Um, what did you think about this idea, though, of, um, you know, if you spend more than three to five minutes, you might start doing the old fashioned teacher role, which is trying to help too much. I mean, back to the what we talked about last episode. Where's that? Is that resonating with you? Does that feel like something you might have fallen into as a teacher? Yeah, I, I, it does. I mean, you know, there, there's this quote um, about this idea of preparing students, right? And I, I really made me think about, you know, in the last chapter, and we were talking about this whole idea of helping, like, as teachers, we want to help students. But I think we also have this need to prepare students like, oh, we're not, I'm not ready to kick them loose yet. I've got, I've got to make sure they're prepared to do the task. So I, I think Peter really is getting into that that, that really that struggle that we need to sort of think about of like, are the kids not prepared or are we not prepared to let them go? <laughs> I think that is a great point. It almost reminds me of raising my own young children at home. Like it's, when, you know, when they're learning to walk, is it that I'm not ready for them to let go of my <laughs> hand and let them, you know, stumble and try it out or, or is it really them? But he, you know, he calls it out and says that idea of preparing our students for what is to come is so ingrained in the fabric of teaching that even when we know it's counterproductive to thinking, it is difficult to stop. I like that's, it's a powerful thing. It's apparently this urge. And I'm, I'm just thinking of all the times I probably didn't even realize, like it was almost mm. subconscious, right? Like that you're just, right. you start saying like, this is a great way to set up your work, or this is a great way to organize <laughs> your paper. Or do you remember when, like all these things that you're trying to yeah. like set the yeah. stage for their learning mm -hmm. when in reality you are just, you know, putting barriers and blocking them in further, further, further into uh, not thinking and, and not engaged in thoughtful um, disc, um, 
idea generating. So, right. Yeah. So Audrey, uh, you know, he he started with the when of 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 when to give the task, but then the next bucket was this idea of where we give the task. What what did you think about that? You know, this is like another from a secondary standpoint. This is another like what are you thinking? Um, <laughs> so he says kids should be standing in loose formation. Like, <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is like my worst nightmare as a teacher. Um, kids just standing randomly around the room. Um, right. It was like this disorder. I remember when I started teaching, um, people would walk in the room and not be able to find me as the teacher because my stature <laughs> was not taller than my students. If they were standing up at the same time, they're like, is there a teacher in the room in here? <laughs> Um, so like, that's very different than I'm sure the elementary teacher experience. So there's a little bit of baggage I carry there with that. But mm. he said that that active state of standing versus sitting into your chair where you're in that passive state, I can relate to that. I can relate to that mm. in my job. Like when I'm sitting at my desk versus when I'm standing, um, right. when I'm teaching, if I'm sitting in somewhere versus I'm standing in front of a room or working the room by walking around, like that is very different in terms of how I feel, um, as engaged in, in being present in the moment. And so I, I recognize that. Um, but the research on how quick kids get to the task, it was truly fascinating. Um, what stood out for you in the section about, about where? Well, well, speaking of the research, how about using looking at cell phones oh, as a yeah. measure of attention? How cool is that idea? Oh, that, for sure. You know, what they did is they, they looked to see how many times did the kids check their phones um, for if they're sitting and receiving the task versus standing, and it was remarkably lower if they were standing. And so um, I just think what a clever way of, of measuring that, right? Because I think that I started reflecting of myself in a meeting or something like, or in any situation now that we have these phones that are our appendages, is that like, it, it really is it really is a, a way as I think in the situations that that is a way that it does measure whether I really into whatever I'm doing, right? Yeah, mental note to our bosses that standing meetings will keep us off of our phones apparently. So, hey, no. Good point. So if they're listening, they should make note of that, right? Um, but wasn't it also fascinating how the, the gathering at the lunch for, it had produced such higher energy. You know, speaking of the workplace, it made me think of what, of, of that, there was a photograph in the book and it, that almost seemed like it was like a huddle at a job at a workplace, yeah. kind of like the boss. Um, she's coming over to, to, to tell everybody what, what the plan is for the day before people go off and do what they're doing. I, I thought, Hey, that, that, that's kind of how a workplace would be. And should our schools be pre preparing our students for what they might do in the workplace? But then I had the thought similar to what you had too, was how much, are our schools in their sit and get format, how much are they informing the workplace as well? So I think there's like mm. this really interesting two-sided coin there of, of informing, but yet, you know, the other way around too, so. That is super interesting. I, I hear that, Mark, because I think that the type of work environment that I wanna be a part of is definitely that let's huddle together really quickly and have a conversation around this and let's get to the work, right, um, versus, come in, file in, sit in a very seat, right? Because <laughs> I do, then I, I do feel like I'm in a passive state and I am not yeah. being treated as a thoughtful member mm -hmm. of that, um, that community, right? Like there, you don't need me to be thinker, you need me to be a receiver of information. And so right. going back to the whole premise of this book, like we're talking about how do we undo 
the messages that we're sending our students that we want them to be passive um, non-thinkers. We right. change that, right? If we want to change it, we're going to have to fundamentally do some things differently. And one of them is probably going to be that we need to talk about giving them their task while they're standing up loosely formed around, um, around the classroom. So super interesting. Great point. Um, but here's where, okay, I got to tell you, this is the meat um, and potatoes of this chapter for me. This is the main section was the, how we launched the task. And I saw this, it said, we've um, researched that, you know, do you give the task in a textbook? Do you give it on a worksheet? Do you project it? Um, and all of our fears are true. Like when you give it in a textbook, that's absolutely the worst thing you can possibly do. So don't, let's not do that. Let's figure out ways around it. But the best thing to do, he says, is to give it verbally. And I have to tell you, as soon as I read that, I had like a million yeah buts. Like that mm -hmm. doesn't work. Yeah, me too. And he obviously mm -hmm. knew that because he said, I know you're thinking about all the yeah buts. <laughs> I know, he anticipated that. Which he said, we will address some here and some in that magical chapter nine. So make sure you're staying around for chapter nine in a few weeks. Um, but this piece, when I read the example on page 105 of actually launching a task verbally, it was not what I thought, Mark. I was really imagining when um, they said verbally launch a task, I was imagining a teacher reading the word problem. That's what I right. imagined. I mm -hmm. imagined like, you know, and you're just reading the words. And that's not at all what he means. I, I agree, Audrey, because as that, I was reading that, I was thinking of times as an adult and a student where that was so frustrating for me. I felt like I had no access. I'm a very visual learner. So I thought the same as you with that. Yeah, and so that goes back to like, I need to be able to see it at the same time. I, I need to be able to like highlight at the same time. And he totally debunked that and said, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about storytelling and narrative. And all mm. of a sudden, like light bulbs went off for me. Like yeah. this fits into culturally responsive teaching. This mm -hmm. fits into what we know about storytelling from generations of like, of, of, of many, many, many cultures. It's mm -hmm. how we pass down information. Like this is right. a, a tried and true way of us getting information from one person out to many, many people. And so when, when he shared how he would take a task and how a teacher would then turn that into a very brief narrative, um, even when it's not like a story, it wasn't naturally a story problem. It wasn't about someone going to the store and buying mm -hmm. something or anything like right. that. Um, I, all of a sudden light bulbs went off for me. I was like, I get it. I can see how that would be something that would all would trigger me into thinking mode. And you are allowed as a teacher to write some things down. Mm -hmm. so, and there were some specific rule, not rules, but some guidelines around suggestions, yeah. suggestions mm -hmm. about how you would write things down. Um, how does this fit into like what your thinking and your experiences are for elementary school? Like, does this, does this resonate with elementary students? Well, you know, it's funny um, where it hit me was actually in that second task in 107, um, the one about the tax collector. And because I had all the same sort of yeah buts that, that you're talking about. And, and as I read, it's funny because I read the task and then I, I read the, the, the script of how it would be played out using this approach. And it, it, again, it was like light bulbs for me where I could see how me, even as an adult reading, reading the problem, I sort of like, yeah, I think I know what they're talking about. <laughs> but then, then it's like, 
doing it with the script, which which I think the important point here, Audrey, that um, if our listeners haven't read this chapter is to know that there's no mathematics that's being given away with this right. approach. Right. There, there's no lowering of the demand of the task. Nope. It's, it's access to the task, which, you know, he brings out the, all this idea of the barriers of the decoding and so forth and so on. And so when you mentioned about uh, elementary, one of the things that sort of went through back through my head is I remembered all the times where kids had such barriers around what is the problem asking, mm -hmm. you know? So like, should our energy be around the mathematics or trying to play some game about what the problem's asking? So that's what, as, as someone who's spent a lot of time in elementary classrooms, that's what really hit me with that. Yeah, I, I can see that, absolutely. I also feel like this is a real push into how mathematics in school could feel like mathematics in the world. Like we don't walk around and see yeah. nicely labeled word problems that say <laughs> use the such and such strategy, right? Right. <laughs> or flip back a page and know exactly what we were talking about the page before so that we could figure out what to use. So I, I think that it's, it's an authentic way to deal with mathematics and that, um, that you're given you know, the situation, you're, you're understanding some of the important details, and then you got to go think about it. And you have some colleagues to think about it with. And you have some of the you have the important constraints, those were given to you. Um, and those are the things that are probably recorded on the board or on a on a, you know, a vertical surface somewhere so you can capture them. But, um, but you're not stuck trying to decode words, right. or make sense of something that's that's um, less realistic of the math that you might be doing. Well, then Peter drops the other shoe, right? And then he gives this statement of only 20% of the students need to understand the task before you kick up, understand what the task is about and really even understand the specifics of it. And it's sort of like, again, that started pushing on me. And I started trying to unpack, like, why am I bothered by that? And, you know, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but it started making me think of the word mastery. Um, and this, this whole thought of, Back to preparation, we were talking about this earlier, this, you know, I need to make sure my kids are prepared to do the task. They under, need to understand everything about it. They need to have mastered things. There was something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Megan Frankie. Um, somebody had tweeted out some uh, um, a quick bit that she had said about mastery and it was just wonderful. This just whole idea of that, that phrase of that word mastery and how um, it's really something we need to unpack and think about. Um, what, how that's influencing our students as thinkers um, and how we get caught up in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important point. You know, the, the idea here is like, again, he's, he's stated throughout the book that these, these different um, components of the thinking classroom are working together, right? So if you have students in randomized, visibly random groups around the room working at whiteboards or vertic mm -hmm. you know, vertical surfaces, um, that knowledge mobility will automatically happen, right? Yeah. And so you don't need to have 100% of your students understand the task completely before you kick them loose to start working on it, that the knowledge will gain. But I think that point you're making around mastery too is that sometimes I think we don't play in the land of like, we're just, we're just thinking about it, you know? And yeah. I think that's what yeah. he's really talking about here is like, we're grappling with it, it's messy. And it's okay mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a whole bunch of us that are in the messiness of it right now. And there's some right. people who are a little more confident that they think they know what's going on. And that's, that's great. But there's a whole bunch of us that are in the messy. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think in, in essence, what he's done is 
is, is many of us have gotten comfortable with that in sort of the problem solving stage when they're at their standing surfaces. But I think what he's done is he's just, he's, he's increased the edge of that to start from the very get go mm -hmm. so that the, the grappling can really be, even when you're reading the problem, which it really, it's, it's what you said, Audrey, that, that it really is the workplace. It's not like when I go to Home Depot, I'm like, um, could I get the easier version of this problems that I'm trying to solve? Like it's a constant problem that evolves if I'm trying to build something. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a great point. Yeah, that was one of my favorite pieces around the constraints continue to be revealed as the problem grows instead of all at once, which is like ah, yes. my life all the time, right? You're like, <laughs> right. I knew about that constraint, but I just figured out the next one. Um, right. and an example of the tax, the tax collector problem that you discussed, I thought that was brilliant how it was like, mm -hmm. oh, but I forgot, that, you know, I would need to tell yeah. you this too. Um, yeah. And that just makes perfect sense for yeah. how stories would evolve, narratives mm -hmm. would evolve life situations evolve, like you don't always get to know all of your constraints when you walk out the door with the problem in the first step. So I think it, I think it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. it's brilliant. Me too. Um, so I want to go back though, to something that started the chapter that kind of has still been, you know, wiggling around my head a little bit. Um, he opens the chapter by saying that one of the questions he gets asked the most, and I think you and I get asked more often than any other question. I, I think I know the question you're going to say. <laughs> is where can I find good tasks? Mm -hmm. Yes, we get asked That's this the one. all the time. A lot, yes. All the time. And um, he, he makes it, he twists it a little bit and says like, there's an abundance of tasks. So, so there's some kind of disconnect here between, between people recognizing that there's tasks out there and the mm -hmm. question of where can I find these and thinking about perhaps how we can find good tasks that actually support our curriculum or the scope and sequence we've been given or the pacing that we're on or those mm -hmm. pieces. Um, so now that you know what the research supports, how are you reflecting on that, that question and how might this actually run in a classroom? What advice might you give a teacher? What are you thinking? Well, you know, when, when I read that, that statement, it really made me reflect on how, how folks are not asking about how the tasks are used or when or where, and it's just about the task. And you know, what it did make me reflect on um, as a teacher was when I used the textbook, I thought I was being pretty strategic because I would have the kids many times jump to the story problems that were in context in like, start with number 31. So we're not even gonna do one through 15 first. We're gonna start with 31 because there's a story problem that has some promise. We'll start with that. So I'd say to this, so, you know, if you looked up on my board, you see it start with number 31 and, and so forth and so on. Um, but now after I read this and I looked at the research, I was thinking like, wow, as long as it's in the textbook, wow. that still could have been a thinking barrier. So, um, so that's, that's something that, that I was thinking about is just really, really considering that you know, one, sometimes I did launch with a problem that was from the textbook that I'd taken out of the textbook and not used the book at all. But I just think it's the wonderful thing about this research that Peter's done is now I have some research to say, boy, that's a really important move to do um, rather than just starting with number 31. I think that's a great point. I also think moving forward as a secondary teacher, I would I feel more confident that I can take things that don't look like story problems mm. and write 
write a narrative um, or sure. script a narrative to go with them, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think the example he gave did not, did not feel forced. It did not feel like we're adding situations to things that don't have situations, um, but it presents a problem in, as a problem. It doesn't just live in the land of um, right. a textbook, right? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you have to explain it verbally and you have to think about how you're going to state it to a group that cannot see the problem mm -hmm. and you're trying to communicate it. I think that really pushes on the teacher or the person writing the script out to really think about what is it that we're trying to get kids to think about? So what is it we want them to think about and grapple with? And how am I gonna let those constraints kind of come along as we explore, right? Um, and I think that could really sh reshape how we take the problems out of our textbook and give them right. to students to really grapple with um, and really maybe change the way that students feel like um, they're able to engage with those problems. Well, wow, as an elementary teacher, that really resonates because you know, that whole idea of keywords and all that kind of stuff with can problems, that just goes out the window because then we don't, we don't have problems that are set up in a predictable fashion. So that's, that's really a nice thought. Yeah. Great. Well, as exciting as this conversation has been, Audrey, looking ahead to next week, are you joking? Chapter seven, which is gonna be about what homework looks like in the thinking classroom. I am on the edge of my seat because yeah. that is just a little bit of a hot topic. So um, yeah. I, and oh, by the way, uh, we should tell everyone yeah. that there's going to be a special guest. So special you guest. definitely have to be here when, and when this episode drops. Um, but until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag some math chat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts about chapter six, or even if you're peeking ahead to chapter seven with that homework stuff, we'll look to include some of those in our next episode. Until then, we wish you great mathematical adventures. Bye for now.